18. Do verse 18 to 30. The rich ruler, rich ruler. If I call him the rich young ruler or just the rich man, uh, that's just because for some reason Matthew adds that he was young. And Mark and Luke have the same story, but don't add that he's young for some reason. So if you keep wondering why I keep calling him a young ruler, it's because they add that he's young. And I'm not sure why, but um, that, I kind of get those confused in my head. So it says, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is not one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time, many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So remember the kind of strange passage, actually, and that's kind of to be expected because Luke just pretty much explained the past two parables for us. He just said, you know, this is a parable about for those who trusted in themselves for righteousness and looked down on others. It's like, okay, well now at least you know how to interpret it. That's at least a little bit obvious. Now for this one, it's a little bit strange. There have been some problems born out of this uh, story. One, because there's some weird stuff going on. Jesus appears to be a little bit cryptic at least. He seems to be a little bit mysterious. It's like he wants the guy to ask more questions, but the guy gives up a little bit too early. He also appears to be a little bit works-based. He says, if you go and give everything away and sell it, then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then you'll, in this time and the age to come, eternal life. And it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, if you sell all your things, you'll inherit eternal life. But we know that Jesus didn't teach that. So it's a little bit strange of a passage because it seems like Jesus is teaching that. And what's with that first part? He says, why do you call me good? And then doesn't explain what he means. So we go from two parables where Luke just tells us what the point of the parable is to Jesus saying, why do you call me good? And then never answers his own question. We're like, wait, are we not supposed to call you good? I thought we were supposed to call you good. And Jesus never answers his question. But this also um, really isn't just about the rich man at all. So there's a few layers to this uh, teaching that I think are important to get to grasp the fullness of it. Because if you just, as is often with Jesus teaching, if you just look at the surface level, you'll miss a lot of things and probably get it wrong. But if you give Jesus the benefit of the doubt that he's a really good teacher, you'll see below the surface and realize what he's actually saying that he's not actually saying. Because that's what a teacher does, is gets you to come to the conclusion, not just tells you the answers. A teacher can do that. That's more of an instructor. But someone who's a good teacher like Jesus gets you to come to the right conclusion. Because that's a lot more powerful than just being given the answers. So this isn't really just about the rich man, although it's the story about the rich man. Because it, what's even funny in, in um, Mark's account is that the in Matthew's is that the rich man just walks away halfway. Where it says in Luke that he got sad. In Matthew and Mark it says he got sad and walked away. Which is interesting because he never actually heard the conclusion to the answer he wanted. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in Matthew and Mark he walks away and then Jesus reveals the answer. He wouldn't stick around long enough to actually hear. You could say he didn't want to hear what he had to say.
So that is interesting, but that kind of shows you that this isn't really about the rich man. It's about the crowds and by extension us as if we were there in person. Because he tells the crowds what he would have told the rich man if he would have stuck around to hear. He tells them that if you give up all that you have for the sake of the kingdom, then you will have many riches in this life and the life to come. Um, And it is interesting. Luke does what Luke always does. He doesn't show you what the response is. He shows you he gets sad and walks away, but you don't get to see what does the guy do. Does he go home and think about it for a few days and goes, you know what, Jesus, you're right. I'm going to give up all my riches and follow you. We don't see because that's not what it's about. The point isn't his response. The point is, how would you respond? If you were in his position, what would you do? That is the point when Luke doesn't reveal how they respond, whether it's the Pharisees or this rich man. It's because he wants to see how would you respond? And of course, this story is as well another contrast. Luke loves to do this to contrast these two parties. Uh, first, remember the, the nine lepers who go away and then one who comes back who happened to be a Samaritan, a thankful Samaritan lepers, and then nine unthankful lepers. And then he talks about the babies and the, uh, the rich man contrasting those two. And then the, the uh, righteous neglected widow and the unrighteous judge, you know, contrasting those two. And then the Pharisee and the tax collector contrasting those two. And then the next story is a, a blind beggar. Uh, and then Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, not just an, any old tax collector, but a chief tax collector contrasted them with a blind beggar. Luke loves drawing these contrasts to prove his point. So the guy asked a really interesting question, but first he says, good teacher, what must I do in a hair eternal life? And Jesus stops him before he answers this question. He goes, okay, first we got to address, why do you call me good? And I think an easy way to understand this is to change the emphasis. It's not, it's not him saying, why do you call me good? I'm not good. Well, of course Jesus is good. He's not saying that. I think he's saying, why do you call me good? He's emphasizing the why. Of course, that doesn't come up in the text, but I think that's a good way to think about it. Because Jesus wouldn't deny that he's good. He says, only God is good. So unless you're ready to admit that I am God, you better be really careful with that word you keep throwing around, good. Because in the same sentence, he's ready to say that both God is good and he's been good. He throws that word around like it doesn't mean anything. God is good, he's been good, pizza is good, everything's good. He doesn't really take that word with any weight. So Jesus goes, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Because before we can evaluate your obedience in terms of your salvation, you better really have a good grasp on what the word good means. So it's not Jesus denying that he's good. It's only that it would be inappropriate for this man to say that Jesus is good unless he's also ready to admit Jesus is God in flesh. But what he asks reveals kind of a fundamentally broken thing about all of us. We have a really bad understanding of goodness because he's like I said, he's ready to admit that both he and God are good. We're kind of on the same pedestal. Of course, God is better, but I've been really good because he wants to know the the answer to eternal life. But he's ready to point towards his own goodness. And it's only when we see God as ultimately and totally good that we should then turn and see our own badness. Because he, I, I'm sure this man would agree that God is good, but he doesn't understand that God is good in such a way that he would then turn and go, wow, we're really, really bad. That's what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, the bridge between them. Chapter 1 in Ephesians is building up the goodness and the supremacy and authority of Christ. He's the name above all names. All things are subjected to him. And then in chapter 2, this really sad turn. He goes, and you, O Ephesian church, you were dead in your sins. Seeing the goodness of Christ makes you see your own badness, not just a word you throw around. God is good and we've been good. I think this is a problem the world faces right now. 
We're failing to see our own badness, and which is strange because after the 20th century, if there's ever a century that we would just finally admit, I think humans are inherently bad. Maybe it would be the 20th century, multiple world wars, dictatorships that have killed millions of people, continuing dictator, dictatorships that are enslaving who knows how many people. But we still are, are, are insistent in the world that men are good. We are inherently good when instead Paul says the exact opposite in Romans. We're bad. We're inherently bad. We're in Ephesians. We just by nature want to follow our own passions and desires. We are bad. Or Jeremiah, the heart is deceitfully wicked above everything else. You can deceive yourself even into thinking that you're inherently good. So after Jesus addresses his goodness comment, uh, he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, don't let that confuse you in verse 18. Inherit eternal life. Uh, This doesn't just mean, what do I do to go to heaven when I die? Because that's not what inheritance means. You don't receive an inheritance when you die. That's not what inheritance is. You receive the inheritance while you're still alive. So he's saying, what must I do for me to inherit eternal life now? So what, he's not asking, what do I do to go to heaven when I die? He's saying, how can I know now that I'm saved? How can I know that I've inherited it here now? So he asks the question on his terms. So Jesus answers him on his terms. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't say, how can I be sure I've got eternal life? He goes, what must I do? So Jesus goes, fine, let's see what you must do. You know the commandments. And he lists the commandments, the Ten Commandments, but starting with number five, which is interesting. Jesus is being a really, really good teacher. You want to know what you should do? I'll tell you what you should do. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not murder. So why the second half of the Ten Commandments instead of the first half? We don't know. I think that's the point. Jesus lets you think about it for a while. But if you kind of look at the Ten Commandments for a while and you're going to divide them up into why, why they're ordered the way that they are, the second half of the Ten Commandments seems to be the commandments that are most easily measurable. You either did murder someone or you didn't. Now, honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy, that, that's a little bit more uh, fluid. How, what does honor mean? Is that a yes or no? It's more uh, of a scale, whereas you either committed adultery and murdered someone or you didn't. It's pretty clear. They're most easily evaluable of yourself. So he has a guy evaluate yourself. You know, did you murder? Did you commit adultery? And the guy says, I've kept all these since my youth. But it's not about the commands that Jesus named. It's about the commandments Jesus didn't name. He goes, fine, since you would be perfect, Go, one thing you lack, I'll tell you the thing that you lack, because that's what he wants to know. What is the thing I got to do to inherit eternal life? Goes, Jesus goes, I'll tell you. Go take all your possessions, which he says, I'll tell you, but then he doesn't tell him. He is being more cryptic. He says, go take all your stuff, sell it, and don't just sell it, but give all the, the funding to the poor. Once you sell it, take all that money and distribute it one by one, piece by piece to all the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. So he goes away sad. So what's the point? The point wasn't if you sell your stuff, you'll go to heaven. That wasn't the point because a lot of people who have sold their stuff or didn't have anything to start with. So that doesn't mean they're guaranteed a spot in heaven. That's not what that means. But what he's talking about is he's drawing emphasis to the commands he didn't name. He names five through ten. But the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. No idols. So he goes, you think you've kept commandment five through ten, but you don't even realize you failed to keep the first commandment. So by not naming the commandment, Jesus is drawing attention to it. I love this because Jesus is using the law in the way that it's meant to be used. See, he, the, the rich man, is using the law inappropriately. He's using the law as a ladder to climb himself up to God, but Jesus is using the law as it's supposed to be used. 
The law was supposed to shine light on your evil sin and then tell you that you're supposed to be righteous, but never give you the power to get there. That's what exactly what Paul means in Romans and Galatians. The law is like this magnifying glass or the spotlight that reveals to you how wicked you are, but also reveals to you the good that you're supposed to do, but doesn't give you the ability to get there. Praise God, because Paul says, if it could, then Jesus died for no reason. If you could attain salvation by the law, then Jesus died for no reason because he died when there's a second option where you could have just been good enough all along. He died for no purpose. So Jesus is using the law to reveal this man's idolatry and wickedness. He's using the law exactly how it's meant to be used. But he, the rich man, misunderstands the law. He, he understands that first part. He goes away sad, but then he goes, but, but I can be good enough. I can then use the law as this step stool to reach God. They're fundamentally just working with different uh, modes of salvation. This guy, in his mind, he's 95% of the way up the mountain and he wants that 5% boost. What do I got to do to make sure? I know I'm near the top. I know I'm much higher than anyone else, much like the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. I look around, I'm doing way better than anyone else. But what is that last 5%? I got to know. And Jesus doesn't say, here's the last 5%. He goes, you're on the wrong mountain. (laughs) You've wasted all your time. You've completely climbed up the wrong mountain altogether. Because he wants following Christ to be this thing that you add on to the end of his moral resume. I've been pretty good and I follow Jesus. That's why the gospel spreads so fast in Thailand and then you have to rehash what you mean because they're very willing to add it to their, their plurality of gods and idols and spirits. But when they realize, no, you have to give all of those up in place of Jesus, then it faces some resistance. And I know that's true in, in many parts of the world. So he wants something to add to the end of his moral resume that will give him that assurance that, yes, I have been obedient. I have reached it to the top of the mountain. Very similar situation to Nicodemus in John 3. Nicodemus, you know, coming to Jesus in, in secret, really, and Jesus is, doesn't tell him the, the secret to eternal life. He goes, no, there's not this additional thing you need to, be, need to do. You need to be born again. <laughs> it's like this, it's as far of an answer from this extra thing you need to do to reach salvation. No, no, you need to completely restart. You need to completely be born again, even though you're a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. As humans... We have broken scales for measuring our goodness and God's goodness. We don't really see how good God is, so we don't really see how bad we are. We have really broken scales. That's why with man it is impossible, but with God it is possible because he will give you that lens to readjust your scales to see how bad we are and how good God is. Jesus' answer goes a little bit deeper, though. Uh, He's not giving a universal rule for salvation, if you can believe it or not. He's not saying, if you give your stuff away, then you will be saved. You will inherit eternal life. If he's teaching that, then he is teaching that salvation is attained by your obedience. And we would all be in a lot of trouble because I don't really know anyone who's given everything they have away. Even in the next page, Zacchaeus, he goes to Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus goes, I'll give half of what I own away to the poor. And Jesus doesn't go, no, that's not good enough. I just told that other guy, you got to give everything away. And if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be fair, I got to tell him that. And I got to tell you, you got to give everything away. But he doesn't do that because Zacchaeus's idol is different. His idol isn't money. His idol is pride and control. So he is saying that you have to turn from your idols to serve God. That's what he's saying. And for this rich man, his idol was money. So for him, in order for him to see he hasn't even kept the first commandment, he says, you must give all your money away. Now that is true of all of us. You must remove your idols and worship God. There is no scenario in which you can follow Christ, but keep your idols. 
That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning away from your idols to serve Christ. You can't just start following Christ, but try to keep your idols in the other hand. You're going to be miserable and confused, kind of like this rich ruler who thinks he's almost there to salvation, but doesn't understand it quite fully. You must turn away from your idols to serve Christ. That is the universal rule Jesus is giving, that if there's anything in your heart that takes the place of God, meaning if you're breaking the first commandment, then that must be turned away from repentant, and then you can follow Christ. But this rich young ruler finds it hard. He doesn't want to. He goes away sad. At least in Matthew and Mark, he goes away sad. So he's sad, but, but I, I've wondered why was it so hard for him? Not only because he's rich, and it says he was extremely rich, which I don't know how rich is extremely rich, but it's pretty rich because there's other rich people in the story that aren't called extremely rich. But it wasn't just because he's rich that is the problem. I think the problem was the thing that the riches brought him. Comfort, security, independence. Kind of similar or kind of the opposite of what a baby's life is like. It's uncomfortable. You are dependent on God. So what his riches brought him was comfort. In my mind, he's this out of place 21st century man teleported to the first century. He pursued the American dream and won. He got it all. He got independence. He was rich. He could retire early. He was comfortable. He did it all. He was living the American dream. And he goes, but what do I got to do? Because this doesn't seem like it's enough. But something is true of him that's true of all of us. Comfort will kill your faithfulness. That's true corporately. That's true individually. Um, It is always uncomfortable to be faithful. I think that's a great strategy that Satan uses. Put as few obstacles in the way to disobedience as possible. Make it as hard to obey and easy to disobey as possible. That's just a great strategy for human behavior. I think that's what Satan often does. It's always harder to obey than disobey. Now, I say comfort kills faithfulness. I'm not saying a day of comfort kills faithfulness. That's not what I'm talking about. God himself is the one who prescribed the Sabbath, which was a day to stop and take a break. God himself prescribed a day off work. God himself prescribed the one-day weekend. So a, a day of comfort or an afternoon of comfort clearly is not the problem. It's a lifestyle that pursues comfort and independence and ease and control. That is what kills faithfulness. And whether it's corporately or individually, corporately meaning the church as a whole, or individually meaning each member of the church individually, comfort kills faithfulness. But discomfort is where growth and spiritual maturity happens. Corporately, it's just always been true of church history. When the church is facing hard times, the church becomes more faithful. It's just almost, you can read a church history book and it's just a one-to-one. Whether it's external persecution or just hard life, whether it's just a bad uh, season or it's just economy has crashed, the church becomes more faithful in times of difficulty. The church may go underground and hide, but the church will become more faithful through persecution and through difficulty. And individually, each of us individually grows in our faith when we are uncomfortable. Because that is when you grow in your faith, is when you face discomfort, when it's hard to forgive those who you don't want to forgive. It is hard to be patient with those who you don't like. To not slander those you really want to slander or gossip about those you don't want to gossip or you want to gossip about. It's hard to say no to that, but that is when you grow spiritually. That is when you will grow in faith, when you're self-sacrificially serving others. That's hard. That's not easy, but that is when you grow. There's a reason they call it growing pains. (laughs) Pain and, and growing naturally go hand in hand. So on either side of this interesting character, we get the, the foil to him. The foil just meaning the antithesis to him. This man was independent. He had bought his independence from God. He had a bunch of wealth. 
Uh, he didn't need to rely on anyone. But on either side of him, one is a baby. They're bringing babies to Jesus. And, and they want, the disciples are saying, no, push the babies away. And Jesus is saying, no, bring the babies to me. But even right before that, he ends the Pharisee and tax collector saying, those who are humbled will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And then the next thing you see is these disciples trying to uh, humble these, these babies saying, no, the babies aren't worth Jesus. So they're, they're lifting up Jesus, but lowering the babies and Jesus reverses it. He says, no, I'll humble myself and bless these babies. I'm not too good that I can't go to these innocent children. And then next story is this man trying to exalt himself, the rich man. And so he's about to get humbled really quickly by Jesus. And on the other side of it is the disciples. They say, we've loved everything and followed you. And Jesus answers. He goes, that's great. You will inherit many things in this life and the life to come. You've been faithful. You've put away idols. You've left your families for the sake of the kingdom of God. And notice it's not just leaving families. A lot of people leave their families unfaithfully saying, no, if you self-sacrificially serve for the sake of the kingdom of God, then you'll be rewarded and receive eternal life. So there's one final point I really like. I wish was in Luke so we could just stay in Luke. But in Mark 10, the same story. Like I mentioned, it says in Mark 10, he went away sorrowful. Now, emotions can be deceptive because one thing I think is true of humans is that uh, going away sorrowful doesn't mean repentance. Feeling bad for something isn't repentance. Feeling bad for something means you're human and you're not a robot. There's a lot of unbelievers and pagans living lives of rebellion against God, and maybe they feel a little bit bad for it, but that doesn't mean they've repented and trusted in God. So be careful with the self-deception of feelings that because you feel bad, therefore you remove that idol from your heart. But either way, he goes away sad. Um, And so I want to ask you, and you have to ask yourself, what is it that would make you go away sad? I think that's the point that Luke's trying to make here. That's why we don't see his response after he goes away. We don't see if he repents or what. What would it be that makes you go away sad? I see a lot of parallels in this to the story of Abraham. To Abraham, his idol was having a son. He did everything it took to have a son. He abused Hagar to have a son. He sent Hagar off to die with Ishmael to have a son. He would do anything to have a son. So when God gave him Isaac, God says, give him back. Not because he wanted him to sacrifice his son and therefore he'll be blessed. No, he's saying, I want to see if you want this idol so bad you're willing to put it above me. Do you love me or the son I've given you more? For Saul, King Saul, it was the same thing. He says, do you love the throne I've given you or do you love me? Because Saul couldn't give up his power and control long enough to let humble David take the throne. And for this rich man, I see a lot of parallels with Abraham. Take your money, your only money that you love, put it on the altar on the mountain and give it up to me. Are you willing to give it up for me? And interestingly, with all of these and this rich man is that an idol in the biblical sense, right? Like what is an idol? An idol is something that captures your feelings and your thoughts and your emotions. It changes the course of your life. You center your life around that. That's an idol. And interestingly, with an idol, it's not always sin. It's not just this sin you've put on the throne. Uh, money, was not, money is not sinful to have. <laughs> See Zacchaeus in the next chapter. Or Lydia, who was rich and started a church in Philippi. It, it's amazing. Money is not a sin. Idolatry of money is a sin. Idolatry is something good that's been turned into an idol. Something that's been exalted to the status of God. For Abraham, it was a child. There's nothing sinful about wanting a child. But he made that desire to have a son more important than God himself. So it can be something neutral that's taken the throne of our heart, which is what Jesus is saying to this rich man. Not because you've kept commandments five through six, but because you broke the first commandment. That's why you're not understanding. So we have to ask God to reveal to us what is our idol. It could be something neutral, maybe even like Abraham. It could be children 
or a job or status or, or, or self-image or pride, something, something normal, something very natural, entertainment, comfort even. Do we live lives of pursuing ease and comfort and not self-sacrificially serving others? So I want to pray. I want to pray that God would reveal that to us. God, thank you so much for this lesson. I, I, I pray that you would be faithful to reveal our idols to us, God. Uh, not just our sin, God. I pray that you would reveal our sin to us and convict us, convict us of that, God. But I, I pray that you would reveal what we have idolized in our life, God. What is, what is the thing that would make us go away sad, God? I pray that you would bring that to our attention uh, frequently, God, so we can continually try to remove that from the throne and, and place Christ there. We love you so much. You're sent to be perfect.